Hey, it's Dr. Angles. Welcome to Advocate. Please be advised that the subject matter that we will be discussing may be disturbing to some listeners. And a big shout out to my friend Corey Hendricks for allowing me to sample his song in Vicasio. You can now download his song from Apple Music, Spotify, and more. Go check him out, and thanks for tuning in. Hey, Advocate family. Welcome. I'm so glad to have you. I wanted to use this episode to do uh, like what I would call a weekly highlight, where I'm going to take a week to highlight specific cases that I think need to have more attention. And in this particular case, I'm going to do a highlight on something known as the Innocence Project. And for those of you who don't know about the Innocence Project, it was founded in 1992 by Peter Newfield and Barry Shipp at the Cardozo School of Law. And their aim is to exonerate the wrongly accused or the wrongly convicted through DNA testing, and to also put an emphasis on reforming the criminal justice system to prevent future injustices. Now, the Innocence Project, I mean, their whole goal is to take on cases, and from my understanding, at least with the inmates I've worked with, who've, who've had the luxury and the fortunate opportunity to have them take on their case, they do it pro bono. They take on their case they review all the factors, they review the mishandlings of the case, they review the trial, they review any jury tampering, they review anything that might have gone wrong within the trial so that they could get a mistrial and or reopen the case for exoneration. And in a lot of the cases that they take on, it's primarily based on DNA evidence. So if there's certain DNA evidence that wasn't tested that should have that could prove that the individual was wrongly accused and wrongly convicted, or if the DNA testing they did get was not enough to really convict them for what they were accused of. They take these on with a number of other things. And I think it's just an amazing, amazing organization. And I urge you all to look at the innocenceproject.org to explore exactly what their mission is and how many cases that they're currently working on. I mean, it's in the hundreds and they do this pro bono and they go off donations. So I'm sure they'd be more than thrilled if any of you listening would be willing to donate any little bit that you might have. And I know times are hard, but even if you're not able to financially donate, you can donate just by spreading the word, just by drawing attention to this because it's a very serious issue. So as you know from my previous episodes, my blog, my website, and my podcast, I am the maternal granddaughter of Louis Arvatulo who invented the rape kit. And the rape kit is the first standardized collection kit that was ever created for sexual crimes. Prior to that, the conviction rate for sexual crime was so low because there was no way to really have that forensic smoking gun to identify the assailant. So now that that's established, in a lot of cases, it's been used to identify serial rapists, serial killers, but it's also helped exonerate wrongly accused. And so today I want to highlight one of the Innocence Project's cases, and it's on their website, so you can actually pull this up, but the individual who was wrongly accused is Christopher Miller. He is from Ohio. His charge is rape, kidnapping, aggravated robbery, aggravated burglary, intimidation, and felony assault. He was convicted of rape, kidnapping, aggravated robbery, aggravated burglary, intimidation, and felony assault. So he got charged and convicted of all counts. He was sentenced to 40 years, and he's already been serving 16 years of that 40 years. So the incident occurred on April 28, 2001, and he was convicted 
January 30th of 2002. So on the night of Saturday, April 28th, 2001, a 25-year-old woman was attacked as she returned to her apartment in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Two men, one armed with a chrome pistol, forced her inside and ordered her to take off her jeans and her underwear. Her shirt was pulled over her head and her face was covered with a towel. Both men then proceeded to rape her. The men left with the woman's purse, which contained $25, along with her cell phone, cell phone car charger, her car, her apartment keys, a date book, a wedding ring, and a wallet. They also took a pair of handcuffs belonging to the woman's roommate, a plug-in cell phone charger, and a wall-mounted phone. As they left, one of the men kicked the woman in the head and told her not to call police. Police focused their investigation on the cell phone after it was used to call the emergency contact number listed in the victim's date book. Police called the cell phone, but no one answered. No further calls were made until shortly after 7 a.m. when the emergency number was dialed again. A few minutes later, the voicemail was accessed and then a number that was stored in the phone was called. Just before 8 a.m., the phone began a period of constant use that included multiple calls to the same number. Police identified the owner of that phone as the girlfriend of 24-year-old Christopher Miller, the individual who was convicted. So Cleveland Heights detectives interviewed Miller, who admitted that early that morning he paid $5 to purchase the phone from a drug friend who needed money to buy drugs. When the battery got low, he got a charger from a friend who owned the same model. Miller admitted that he suspected the phone was stolen. He could not give the name of the person who sold him the phone. He said that he threw it away and he learned police were looking for it. He denied any involvement in the attack on the victim. When Miller initially provided an alibi for Friday instead of Saturday, police believed he was trying to deceive them. In addition, his girlfriend initially said she had seen Miller with the phone on Saturday morning, although the crime occurred Saturday night. Ultimately, she said that Miller was home with her and asleep when the crime occurred. During this time, police prepared a photographic lineup and the victim identified Miller as the gunman. Based on her identification and Miller's admissions about the cell phone, Miller was arrested on April 30th, 2001. He was charged with rape, kidnapping, aggravated robbery, aggravated burglary, intimidation, and felony assault. DNA tests were performed on the rape kit and a single male DNA profile was identified. However, it was not Miller's DNA. At first, authorities believed that Miller may have had a low sperm count since the victim said both men ejaculated but tests show that Miller did not have a low sperm count. Police searched Miller's home but found nothing linking him to the crime. Miller was excluded as the source of a pubic hair also recovered from the rape kit. Police found cat hair on his clothes when he was arrested. Analysts compared cat hairs from Miller's clothing to hairs from the victim's cat, but could not establish a link. Miller's clothing was examined for the victim's DNA, but none was found. So no further DNA testing was performed on any other evidence, including the towel that was put over the victim's face or the pubic hair that was pulled from the rape kit. Prior to the trial, the prosecutor's office offered Miller a deal. If he pled guilty to lesser charges and name who his accomplice was, the prosecution would support a sentence of seven years of prison. Miller rejected the offer and asked to take a polygraph examination, but that request was denied. A detective testified that the victim said the gunman was wearing a black jacket and a jersey-like v-neck shirt with red and blue writing, which was precisely what Miller was wearing when he was arrested. When the defense called Dwayne Collins, who testified that he found the cell phone in a bush in the early morning hours of April 29, 2001, only a few hours after the victim was raped and robbed, Collins told the jury 
that he pushed a button to make sure the phone was still working. He said a few minutes later he sold it for drugs. He identified Miller as the man he sold it to, but admitted he did not know Miller's name. Collins denied knowing the phone had any connection to a crime. So the prosecution argued that the DNA test results excluding Miller meant that the victim must have been mistaken about both attackers ejaculating. The prosecution contended that the victim's identification of Miller and her accurate description of the gunman's clothing was evidence that Miller was involved in the crime. But the defense argued that the calls on the stolen cell phone on Sunday morning, the redial of that last outgoing call, a call to a stored contact, and two calls to voicemail were consistent with someone getting the phone and testing it for the first time to see if it worked. Not someone who had made a call right after the crime had already happened and someone who knew that the phone worked. After three days of deliberation, the jury convicted Miller of all charges and he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. In August of 2004, the DNA profile from the rape kit was matched in the FBA DNA database to Richard Stadmeyer. Stadmeyer had been convicted in March 2002 of committing a similar crime in May 2001, about five miles away from the attack on the victim. Stadmeyer had been sentenced to 25 and a half years in prison for aggravated robbery, kidnapping, gross sexual imposition, and misuse of a credit card. His accomplice in that crime, Charles Boyd, had pled guilty and testified against Stadmeyer for a reduced sentence. So, the victim testified and said she only saw two people involved in the attack and she was unable to identify Stadmeyer or Boyd. Cleveland Heights detective Mike Schmidt testified for the first time that the victim had originally told him that three people were involved. So as we can see, there's some back and forth with the detectives and their testimony during the trial and there is inconsistencies with the DNA. The kit did not have any DNA that was taken from the victim that in any way matched Christopher Miller. But Christopher Miller had still been convicted of all of these charges and sentenced to 40 years in prison. But thanks to the Innocence Project, in August of 2017, the DNA tests excluded Miller and identified the DNA profiles of Stadmeyer and Boyd. And we're lucky because the more and more that we build our national database of DNA, the more we can retest old rape kits to find the correct matches. In June of 2018, the prosecution filed joint motions to vacate Miller's convictions. So on June 21st, his convictions were vacated, the charges were dismissed, and he was released. He served 16 years in prison for a crime he did not do. The only thing he was guilty of was buying a cell phone that was taken from the victim. And it sounds like that cell phone was taken thrown in a bush somewhere nearby, picked up by somebody who saw that it was working and sold it to Miller for drugs. Not only was Miller the early 2000s exonerated through DNA evidence, he was still convicted. And during his time in prison, he didn't stop fighting. And the Innocence Project didn't stop fighting for him. And they sought to obtain a new trial in 2007 on the ground that Stadmeyer's DNA was identified in the rape kit, but they denied the motion. It took 10 additional years before the Innocence Project was able to argue that DNA testing had become more sensitive since the original testing and that it can prove that he is not a match. Because of the Innocence Project's intervention, the prosecution did not oppose that request. And it took from 2002 until June 2018 for Christopher Miller, an innocent man, to be released despite the DNA evidence proving otherwise from the beginning.
So this is why the Innocence Project is so important. This is a case that they had successfully taken on and were able to exonerate. They have hundreds of cases, just like Christopher Miller's. Hundreds of cases in which people are wrongly accused. And there's a host of reasons why that might be. In this particular case, and in most cases, a lot of law enforcement agencies have a lot of pressure that are put on them to find the person responsible. And in doing so, that overshadows what's standing in front of them, which is that they have the wrong person. The need to find the right person sometimes supersedes the fact that they've grabbed the wrong person. You can't put a square peg in a round hole. It doesn't work. And in fact, it just took so many years from this man's life. And he has a conviction and a crime that he's been connected to that will haunt him forever. And it just isn't okay. And so I really hope that with you as listeners and me highlighting the Innocence Project, that we can draw some more attention to the importance of DNA testing and why we should never have a backlog of untested rape kits and why testing of DNA should be done regularly. Even if it was tested first in 2001, testing it again in 2017, they got a match because the individuals who really did it had already gone to prison on different crimes and their DNA was finally uploaded into our national database so they could get a map. We need to start doing this regularly. And I would love to hear from you guys as to how we can generate ideas of how to make that happen. Thank you so much for listening. Check out The Innocence Project. Donate or talk about it as much as you can. Let's make history. Let's make things change. Till next time, guys.